brothers. My name is Doug Draper. I'm a 1992 graduate from the University of Kansas. I'd like to welcome you to On the Banks. On the Banks is the only fraternity podcast where we meet brothers, share stories, and we embrace the, uh, the shared values of our uh, fraternity of Phi Gamma Delta. So today we have uh, a really cool topic. I'm excited about it. And um, we're going to be talking, I'm not even going to say what it's going to be about. So we're going to save that. But uh, Christopher Mack Lewison is joining us today, and he's a 1996 graduate from Akron University, the Zips, the Zips. Yes. Yeah, awesome. Mac, yes, how you sir. Doing? How you doing uh, today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Doug. I appreciate oh. it. Yeah, of course. Of course. We like to learn a little bit about our guests before we jump into uh, to our topic. But um, so here we go. Mac is uh, Mac Lewison. He's from Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, he now lives in Manhattan, Kansas, which is referred to as the Little Apple. And uh, he's married and has two, two kids, Lane and Owen. And um, right now, Mac is an adjunct uh, instructor at K-State and the National Strategic Selling Institute. And he teaches a course he developed, uh, which is pretty cool, developing your own class and curriculum. It's called Sales Negotiation. And it's uh, to undergraduates in the College of Business. Um, he was previously served as a special agent in the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the Kansas City Division, uh, and he later opened up a satellite FBI office in Manhattan, Kansas. And Mac, we were talking that, yes, there literally is an FBI office, thank you, in, in Manhattan, so that's pretty cool. And um, we're going to talk about some of his responsibilities um, uh, in his previous career, and, and uh, we're just going to rock and roll and have a good time. So... Uh, I'm excited about it. So Mac, let's um, let's just kind of go from the top here and um, um, you know, give us a quick story, kind of a background of your journey. I gave a, a real quick snapshot, but um, interviewing a special agent negotiator from the FBI is pretty cool. So give us a little backstory about yourself beyond the intro and maybe kind of how you got into that uh, that line of work. You bet. Uh, so, Simply, I mean, I'm a product of of 9-11. I mean, a terrible uh, terrorist incident. And um, I came in the FBI directly after that event. And, you know, prior to that, I was working in my field in which I got a degree at the University of Akron. So marketing, uh, I was a, a marketing and sales guy for uh, what is now AT&T. At the time, it was uh, SBC or Southwestern Bell, and I was in Dallas, Texas. I had had an interest in the FBI prior to 9-11, but I was, was trucking along in a global sales organization, really enjoyed it, loved the people there, um, and then that happened. And uh, so just to put it into perspective, all agents go to Quantico for training, and in 2001, you know, the terrorist attacks happened in September, mm -hmm. there was, uh, it's my understanding, one class of 50 agents, I believe that's correct, uh, one class of 50 agents. And uh, the following year, as the FBI began to ramp up for uh, its terrorist investigation capabilities, they put 20 classes through, so 1,000 agents. And so I was, I was part of, of that group. I went uh, in August of that year, uh, and it's, it's several months. But, uh, you know, 
what's interesting, I just was contacted by uh, two folks that got accepted to the FBI Academy to go be special agents. So their um, backgrounds completed, they're, they are just waiting on a, on a final date. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Doug, is because one of the things that, uh, that uh, they said to me was, you know, they were along in their career. One of them has a PhD in, in social psychology. Uh, I was talking to another one. She's an intelligence officer in the army. Mm-hmm. And the, the person that, that uh, is the academic, she said, I just never thought that the job of FBI agent was available to me. It's just not something I ever allowed myself to, to explore. Uh, but on a whim, she applied phenomenal background, both of them. And uh, now they're on their way to the Academy. So I bring that up to say, um, you know, I know there's actually at least one other Akron brother that's an active FBI agent now, but I would say, I, I'm not sure how many folks are in the intelligence community. I know we had, you know, at least I think you interviewed one brother that had been in the agency before. But um, if that's something folks are interested in, it is an actual career path that is available to you. And I would encourage you, if that's interesting to you, pursue it. Heck, contact me, you know, and I'll, I'll help kind of walk you through it and describe what that career is like a little bit even greater detail than we'll get to today. Yeah, that's great. You're right. I don't think many people are like, okay, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, you know, a, a therapist of some sort. And um, it's almost one of those jobs, like, I didn't even know, like, how do you go about doing it? And sure. so that that's great. And hopefully the brothers will reach out um, and your phones won't get flooded, but you'll have some, um, some brothers uh, reach out. So that'd be fine. Yeah. So I know FBI agent encompasses quite a lot of bit yep. of of coverage, right? Everybody does a lot of different things sure. and the government's awesome for, for acronyms and things of that nature. So tell us about what you did specifically and then maybe jump into kind of what a day in the life was sure. uh, when you were at the Bureau. So specifically, uh, you know, agents do get career pathed. Um, and what that means is you'll have a, a specialty where you will get advanced training Uh, beyond the academy. And so in my case, um, I was in foreign counterintelligence. And so what that means is if there is a foreign intelligence services uh, from different countries that might be adversarial countries to the United States, they have an interest in accessing secrets, which military secrets or political secrets, um, something that a company might hold if they are producing some high technology across multiple sectors, whether it's aviation or space or just a, you know, uh, a lot of it's just fundamental technology, gas and oil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But a lot of countries aim to steal that information and that technology rather than to develop it in-house over time. And so our job was to prevent those folks that were spying in the United States from doing that. So the, our, our investigative responsibility was, was catching spies operating in the United States. And so that was, it was exciting. It was, it was cool. And I'll talk, I mean, I can talk about, you know, you asked about a day in the life, uh, but I'll just add on to that, that most agents 
have a collateral duty. Some have several, you know, extra duties. And these are things that they probably have sought, um, sought out. You know, some folks are very, very interested in evidence collection. So like think CSI. Mm -hmm. um, some folks are, are very interested in uh, very operational, tactical, um, you know, uh, lifestyle. And so that would be maybe SWAT. Um, and in, in my case, I was just very interested in um, the kind of the art of, of talking to folks uh, to, you know, meet an objective and so became a hostage negotiator. And, you know, in today's day and age, it's actually a, an awesome skill set to have because, um, you know, really two things, we'll get into this, I know more later, but, you know, one, it's always helpful to have skills that allow you to ethically get more of what you want, respectfully and ethically, but you can get more of what you want out of life. On the second prong, I would say it's helpful because, um, you know, just look at, you know, the state of the nation, politically, uh, uh, just, uh, from a jobs perspective, there's just a lot of discord and upheaval right now. Mm -hmm. And so much of it really needs uh, folks all around both sides that have the ability to do a little de-escalation, to listen more, to have a more kind of a durable, meaningful conversation without finger pointing without emotions becoming overwhelming the situation. Mm -hmm. So that was what I mean, I, I really thought that that was kind of a cool uh, collateral assignment, because it helped me with my regular investigations. Yeah. But gosh, it just helps in life at home, uh, you know, with the credit card company, with, um, you know, everyday life. So it, it's, a, it's a nice skill to have. Yeah. You know, when you were just talking there, I was thinking, um, all those things you were describing, you could write a book about how to be a leader, right? I'm just thinking those are skills that you need to have when you go into the real world sure. and you're, you're leading people and, and things of that nature. So you're exactly right. It's a transferable skill. And you and I, when we were uh, putting this, uh, this discussion together, we kind of said, what would be a negotiator's mindset and how that could benefit you as an individual when you're, <clears throat> excuse me, out of, out of college and taking the next steps. And then obviously you, generated and created some curriculum at, at K-State, which talks about that. So um, the conflict resolution, you know, that stuff's not necessarily um, taught in school beyond your class that you've put together. But talk to us on why you think everybody is better off having those skill sets as a negotiator. You spoke about it just a second ago, but maybe you could elaborate, you know, when you say a negotiator's mindset, you know, what does that mean and how does that relate to um, kind of real world outside of the, uh, the FBI, uh, FBI. Sure. You know, if, if you go into a conversation, whether it's a personal conversation or it's a business opportunity and you don't have a certain mindset in advance, and I'll kind of, I'll kind of define that a little bit more in a moment, but if you don't have a certain way of thinking about it, whether it's a framework um, or just sort of some mental preparation about that interaction, you can get rocked back on your heels very quickly. And what I mean by that is you can get upset, you can be offended, taken aback, you can allow uh, your emotions to overwhelm the situation. And as that happens, we 
go from a collaborative situation to a competitive situation. Um, and if we're offended, we are not able to see opportunity. If we are defensive, we're not able to see creative solutions and solve problems. So I think the first thing it does is it allows us to be creative. It allows us to want to seek uh, problem solving and it allows us to collaborate. And so, um, but, but that mindset, you know, is just the, the, what I mean is uh, from a tactical standpoint or from just a real practical standpoint is before you pick up the phone to make the call, enter the meeting room, before you engage in a, in a constructive conversation, take a deep breath, think to yourself, okay, uh, you know, Doug, Mac, I'm going into this, this important situation. Uh, here's why it's important. So I'll set a goal for myself. Uh, and I think that's critical. You know, I, I'm a proponent that if you go to any meeting, an in-house business meeting, a meeting with, um, you know, if you're at church or you volunteer or whatever, have a goal for that meeting so that when the meeting's over, you know if it was productive or not. You know if you met the outcome and then what next steps are. Um, but you should think about that. The other part of the mindset is that we want to uh, go into it with like this productive idea that whatever we agree to, that it can be actually implemented. So a lot of times, let's say in, I, I work in the sales world a lot. I do a lot of consulting. And of course, I teach that. Um, we, we might have, and I can remember being a very um, motivated salesperson in my past as well. You want to close the deal. You want to get it done. And then a lot of times you hand that business off to somebody else. Well, if you don't have a uh, mindset where implementation, where the durability of the agreement beyond the signature phase uh, is not super important to you, then it's there's a good likelihood that it is not going to get uh, to it won't be a, end up being a successful uh, agreement uh, in the long term. So the, the signature is not the goal. Uh, that is part of the process. But the goal is to fashion an agreement, whether it's a verbal agreement about a car that you've just bought or uh, some, some agreement with your children about how you're going to act when you go over to the grandparents' house that night or whatever it is, uh, it, it's making sure that it actually can be uh, implemented. Yeah, that's great. You know, it wouldn't be uh, the government if there wasn't an acronym for something, right? And when you and I were talking, there was uh, uh, something that was brought up a, a couple of times, and I won't I'll let you explain what it is, but it's yeah, sure. BATNA. Yeah, B-A-T-N-A, -A, BATNA. So sure. talk about what that is and, and how it uh, relates to the things you just, just spoke about. So BATNA, give us Absolutely. the lowdown. Absolutely, yeah. So acronyms, right? Um, so BATNA, as you, so it stands for best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Mm -hmm. But if you want to just use layman's terms, just say you're seeking alternatives, okay? Right. Um, if I was going to uh, buy a car from you, Doug, Doug, you had a used car, used Honda Accord, and you put it up on Facebook Marketplace because you're trying to sell it yourself. You have an idea of what you want to price it at. Um, and then I have an idea of what I'd be willing to pay. So we're going to look at independent 
uh, third party documentation. So we might look at Kelly Blue Book, we might look online, uh, and we, we might try to determine what that vehicle is going for in the condition and mileage that it's in and all that stuff. But let's say we go get together. And even though we have a conversation, and there's interest on my part, we can't come to terms. Maybe we can't come to terms on price, or you need to hang on to the vehicle for three more weeks until your new car that you've ordered comes in or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can't come to terms, if I have not thought of alternatives in advance, I might put myself in a pickle because I might feel like, well, I have to give on price. I thought before I went in this conversation with you, Doug, I thought I'm not going to pay more than $5,000 for that vehicle. But you have said you're not going to give it, you're not going to sell it or give it up for, for less than six. Okay. So if I uh, have not thought of other alternatives, what might those other alternatives be before I go to the meeting? Like I might say, okay, I will look at other vehicles. Surely there are other people in my area selling similar four door sedans that would be, you know, good enough for, for me to get to work or whatever my reason uh, for buying that car is, the why. And so maybe I look for other people selling a car. Maybe I decide that um, we can still get along as a family with only one car for a while. And maybe if I need to, I'll do public transportation and Uber. Um, so in other words, you come up with multiple alternatives. And that way, when you go into your um, conversation, your negotiation with the person, you don't feel that that sense of pressure that you've placed on yourself to do a deal when it's not financially viable or the terms and conditions like delivery time and you know other things are don't meet your needs. So it just gives you kind of more flexibility. So there's a lot of power in having alternatives. Now, we'll say this. Now, this is just, just for the sake of playing devil's advocate. Um, I think having alternatives is a great strategy. There are some folks that might say, if they wanted to challenge this concept, that um, if you go in with an alternative, it makes you less creative and less uh, collaborative and creative in the, in the conversation. In other words, if I have a hard out, if I know what my hard alternative is and I'm quick to take action there, maybe I'm not as creative in the, in solution finding as I could be. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think the, the answer to that is just simply, it's good to have alternatives, but include in your mindset that I am going to be creative and how, are, how, how is one creative? Um, we're creative by asking lots of great substantive, thoughtful questions. Um, let's say that the person says, no, I can't do it for less than, for less than 6,000. I, I, I would not necessarily just say, okay, uh, apparently um, Doug is a hard number. I don't know why, but he's got this, this number. Well, uh, maybe I explore and I say, I say, Doug, you seem like um, $6,000 is an amount of money that you really need for this vehicle. Can you share with me why that is? Well, maybe the new vehicle that you ordered requires 
you know, after down payment and tax, six thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Maybe that's a number you need, or maybe they did build. You did build in a little cushion, and you really need fifty six hundred dollars. But they were scared that if they didn't buffer that number a little bit, that that you would negotiate down too much. Mm-hmm. And so by asking thoughtful questions and trying to understand the why in negotiation language, that's that's the interest, trying to understand somebody's interests. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps us have a conversation where you say, okay, so you need a certain amount of money, or maybe it wasn't about the money at all. Maybe it was that, like I said before, the example where you really need the money and you do want to sell the vehicle, but your son or daughter uses that vehicle to get to school, but they're out of school in three weeks. And at that point, you could turn the vehicle over. You're just not ready to do it yet. You just got to explore and ask questions. Just don't take things um, based on simple statements that are made. Mm-hmm. Ask, ask those in a way that's curious and friendly, but be sure not to be judgmental about the way that and the tonality that you use. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And trust me, there's been times in, in our career, and I'm sure uh, the brothers out there listening, where you rapidly go into a meeting or a situation that you didn't have time to prep for. And I bet nine times, if not more uh, out of 10, you walk away um, you know, disappointed in, in the outcome. So the preparation and asking probing questions for sure is, is, is super important. Um, you know, you've had a, an amazing career and working for Ma Bell, Southwestern Bell, and then more migrating into uh, you know the FBI, and now you're you know a professor at at K State. So of all of those things, um, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, what was your proudest uh, accomplishment in your career? And then one thing that we haven't dived into uh, in great detail, which we will, is what's your proudest accomplishment within the fraternity? Uh, what's your proudest, uh, proudest accomplishment at Phi Gamma Delta? You can answer either one, first or second. Proudest sure. moment for career and uh, within our fraternity. So, you know, my my proudest moment. Um, you know, they they I'll I'll bring forth one of our our signature uh, Phi Gamma Delta phrases, which is you know, friendship is the sweetest influence. And so, you know, if if not for friendship, then then why do we do it, right? And so I've been very fortunate, you know, I, I would say this, I'd love to stay in better contact with more of my brothers, especially from the Akron chapter. Um, but I have been able to stay in touch with quite a few of them. But I'm, I'd say one of the things I'm most proud of is that two of my best friends to this day, shout out to Matt Zapp and Dave B about, um, are two of my, my best friends. Uh, and I talk to these, these guys every single week. They live in, in, um, you know, North Carolina and Washington, DC, and, you know, we're not able to be together, but, you know, as I get older, I realize the importance of, of old friendships and those old enduring friendships where, you know, they know you at a very, you know, deep level, you know, that's, that's very important to me. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. You know, I know that um, the Akron chapter uh, continues to do very, very well, both, um, you know, kind of at a, um, 
accomplishment level, you know, we've always done well with uh, our performance academically and sports and, and everything else on campus. Um, but the, the quality of men that are in that chapter are, are outstanding. Um, I'm constantly getting reports from different brothers uh, about that, which makes me feel great because, you know, you hope that your chapter endures. And, you know, we've, I'm also proud of the fact that we've had a long line of, of Akron Fiji's that have been field secretaries and officers in the fraternity in the Arcanet. And so, um, you know, I'm very proud of, of my brothers mainly. Um, so uh, your other question was about uh, pride in, in a uh, moment with the FBI or I'm sorry, it was your other- Just question? anything related, obviously family, uh, but as far as your career, I was saying you kind of, you've had three different careers, you know, as a yeah. sales guy for the, yeah. the and then uh, the FBI and, and now as, uh, as a professor. So of those three, think of a moment or something you're most proud of. So that was the second question. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would say that this might, I, I know this is going to come off sounding uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit corny, uh, but I, this is, this is truly how I feel. Um, I am a people first guy always. And I, just really, really value my relationships that came out of my formative, like right after college years when I did work at Southwestern Bell, SBC, now it's AT&T. Um, and, and I still spend a lot of time with those folks. And uh, going to the FBI, and then now at K-State, there's, there's been a theme, there's been an absolute theme, I think, in my life, where I have you know, they always say, try to surround yourself with better people than you to lift you up and to challenge you. And I, you know, I've, I've always done that. You know, I tried to do that uh, undergrad at Phi Gamma Delta uh, and tried to do that um, at SBC um, and of course at the FBI. And then now I'm super duper proud to be affiliated with K-State's uh, Sales Institute. I mean, the, um, you know, not to, not to give a public service announcement or an advertisement here, but when you talk about college and how expensive it is today, I personally think we should be providing a ton of value and exceeding expectations at, at all times. Right. And if you, if, if, you know, somebody were to pursue a career in sales, and that might be something folks never thought of, but I know in our, uh, in our program, 99% of the folks get placement with a high caliber sales job, a lot of them through a lot of our, our corporate partners. Um, and they're going to, they have an opportunity to get into the six figures within a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's a extremely attractive uh, career path, but anyway, I'm, I'm proud to be associated with the people across the spectrum of all those organizations. That's great. So I'm gonna uh, flip it over. Uh, the last two are gonna be very fraternity specific, right? So there's two questions I like to ask our guests. One, um, you know, you have a lot of history in, in 1996, I was 92. So we've been around the block a little bit. Yeah. But I always like to get perspective from our guests about where they see the fraternity and, and the Greek system kind of five years out, 
right? Um, everything's evolving. You and I, as we've gotten to know each other in the last uh, a couple months, is and things move quick, things move rapidly. There's always change in the world. So, in your opinion, where, where do you think the Greek system and and uh, and Phi Gamma Delta are 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 trending or heading uh, five years out from now? So, you know, again, I am really in awe of headquarters and how they continue to grow the fraternity. I mean, organizations, cities, cultures, they either grow or they, they, they die out. And so we continue to grow in the face of adversity. Um, you know, the relationship between universities and the Greek system has changed dramatically, Doug, since we were in school. Um, some, some of those relationships have uh, pulled back a little bit, but I think, you know, what I see for us is it, and if we stick to the, the fundamentals, the blocking and tackling about what we are about, the fraternity is about excellence. I mean, I can remember um, when I was a, uh, going through the rush process at Alpha Omicron at Akron and Dave Wilmer, the president at the time, an awesome Fiji, um, talking about excellence and, you know, his whole speech was, if you're not about excellence, if you're not about academic achievement, if you're not about friendship, then maybe this place isn't for you. And this idea that each one of us is accountable to replace ourselves mm -hmm. is a message and leadership values that I have used ever since the fraternity. So I was fortunate enough to be chapter president. And I've always said, being a leader of peers, and I'm speaking to undergrads right now, being a leader of peers is one of the most difficult leadership challenges that you'll ever face because you don't have discrete authority over anybody. Uh, they did elect you, and that's, that's a certain type of authority, but you're a, you're a peer. And so you have to motivate and you have to lead in a very, very different way. Plus the fact that you're, you have deep friendships with a lot of the people that you have to um, you know, make sure they're paying their dues and make sure that they're accountable for their actions and things like that. So learning that as an undergrad Help me. I mean, one of the things I point to as a skill set is small team leadership. And what I mean by that is I've always I, I negotiated contracts and led sales teams to build massive telecommunications architecture for the company. And from a sales perspective, all of those were small teams. We're talking like 10, 12 people or less. Mm -hmm. And that system of leadership has been, it was the same at the FBI. When you're a case agent, um, you know, I was the, our coordinator for our hostage negotiation team. So when I was a hostage negotiator, it was a small, small team leadership environment. Um, as a teacher and instructor in college now, I, I lead a classroom of a lot of upperclassmen, undergraduates, small team leadership environment. So mm -hmm. Uh, I guess as a way of looking out to the future, the leadership and the, the core principles that we stand for will serve us well. We don't need to, I don't think, reinvent anything, but we do need to learn to recruit the kind of people that we want in our 
in our fraternity and to be associated with us. Uh, and, um, but I, I think my message would be stick to the core blocking and tackling, um, you know, leadership, recruitment, friendship, and, you know, the values that, that are so important to us because that's the real deal stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I get it. Um, before we uh, have one more final question for, I know that, that uh, you piqued my interest and hopefully you did in some undergrads that are out there is um, how to get involved in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I know there were some, some, uh, some classes or some other things you wanted to share with everybody. So tell us uh, how to get more involved and if we've piqued the interest of, uh, of some of our brothers out there. Sure, absolutely. So I first I'll say uh, I'm not affiliated with the Bureau at all. So I'm not, um, you know, acting on their behalf, but I am a huge advocate for the FBI because I think that the career of an FBI agent is extremely interesting, um, incredibly diverse. You know, I know you brought up before kind of a day in the life. I didn't really even answer that question. I would say I could tell you really quickly now, the interesting thing about the a day in the life of an FBI agent is it's very diverse. You're going to be doing lots of different things. Now, the the for real check is the you know the reality check uh, about any kind of work in law enforcement or intelligence is you're going to be writing a lot. You're going to be writing a ton of reports. But honestly, I don't know what profession you could be in where you're not writing a lot of emails and correspondence and documenting the things that you're doing. But in that profession, absolutely. But there are moments in time where you can do some incredible, incredible uh, things. It might be, um, you know, doing a search warrant where you are going in with a team of people into a uh, kind of a, a situation where you're looking for a subject. It might be um, working on a case for months and months and months that comes to a conclusion where you actually get to arrest somebody and make a difference in the lives of the victims. Um, it's just very dynamic. And so if you have a thought that I'd be interested to find out more about the FBI and what it's all about, you know, there's the traditional law enforcement criminal investigations and then there's the whole national security apparatus and cyber of course mm -hmm. um i absolutely encourage anybody to reach out to me for you undergrads one of the one of the best internships in america in my humble opinion uh after have been been around academia for a while and seeing a lot of the opportunities is the fbi's summer 10-week internship it's a paid internship um, you uh, will actually get put into a substantive unit. And so what I mean is you'll go through a background check prior to that summer that you go, usually before your senior year, and you will be placed in a substantive unit where you're going to be working alongside other real FBI agents and analysts to work on important cases. And, you know, I, I know a lot of times and not to... Uh, make any kind of characterizations of other internships, but they can be, um, you know, not as robust and, and the opportunity, I guess. This mm -hmm. is very interesting, compelling stuff. Um, right now, we're outside of the application window. 
okay? The application window opens in September of every year. So if that sounds interesting to you guys, keep your eyes open, go to the FBI website and look for the uh, honors internship program. Mm -hmm. And you can learn more about that. I can promise you it's, it's a heck of an opportunity. The other neat component of it is, it's just like any place else. Once you get your foot in the door there, your, your chances of picking up full-time employment later on uh, improve dramatically. So you, you do the internship, you're going to meet people, you're going to have a background check already. And if, if you decide later after you get your degree, uh, and in some instances, you might have to work a, a, a couple of years, um, but the chances of you uh, gaining full employment with the FBI later on uh, goes up substantially. So that's just kind of a thought I had um, for for everybody. If and I'll and I'll throw in one other plug too. I know like true true uh, crime podcasts are super uh, uh, popular these days, and um, I'll put a plug in for um, a friend of mine, Jerry Williams. And if you were to go to jerrywilliams.com, that's J-E-R-R-I Williams, common spelling.com. So Jerry is a retired FBI agent, and she has one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the world, and it's called FBI Retired Case File Review. And so, Doug, what it is, if uh, you're an FBI, a retired FBI agent, you come on and you brief your most signature case that you worked on uh, while you were an FBI agent. And so uh, it's an incredible podcast. I bring this up to say, if you're a fan of that stuff, that's a great reason to listen. But if you think you might be interested in a career uh, in the Bureau, then take a listen to that and you'll get an idea of some of the exciting things that, that one could end up working on. JerryWilliams.com. Nice. Good, good. Yeah. I was going to ask if if uh, Jerry was the Feigam, but you answered that question when you clarified gender. So we'll just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so this uh, this will be the, uh, the last question and refer to it kind of like the, the elevator speech, right? Yeah. If you were sitting there and and looking to give advice, I always say to oh, your 20-year-old yeah. Feigam self, but if you just had a, a minute or two to kind of recap what it would mean and what advice you would give yourself in hindsight, Tell us what that would be. Absolutely. Uh, so my first thought is, and I, I recommend this to, um, to all of my, my students right now, you know, if, you, if you're not a journal person, become a journal person. You know, folks journal for different reasons. Sometimes it's therapeutic. Sometimes it is for a specific reason, like let's say you're preparing for a job interview and you're trying to capture some of the stories that you might tell that demonstrates your leadership or about those times where you ran into an obstacle, how you overcame it. Well, in general, my belief is keep a journal, make a note, one comment a day, you know, just anything substantive that happens. Because believe me, um, over time, I mean, I know there's folks that are a lot smarter than I am with way better memories, but um, over time, you do start to forget some, some things and uh, some of your own lessons learned begin to kind of slip away a little bit. So 
keep notes. It's so valuable later on because um, it, we're a storytelling culture. And if you want to be able to tell great stories, capturing some of that stuff as you go along will make your stories so much richer in detail later on. And as I already mentioned, for practical reasons too. I mean, if you need to talk about something for a job interview or a promotion, um, or you're giving a speech or whatever, gosh, just capturing things as you go makes life a whole lot easier. So that's one thought I have. Um, one, another thing is, is what we're talking about, a negotiator's mindset. Um, many of you have heard that, I'm sure in the past, that it, um, it would be great if earlier on in life, we had been uh, taught financial literacy so that we better understood balancing a checkbook and investing and the implications of tax and all that kind of stuff. Well, we've made huge inroads to financial literacy education in the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think, it, I think the same way about negotiation. Um, in most aspects of life, whether it's dealing with your significant other, um, dealing with a work project or a fraternity volunteer opportunity, et cetera, we could get a better outcome for ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about being selfish or not being generous or collaborative. I'm talking the opposite of that. What I'm suggesting is look at it from a opportunity to get a better outcome for yourself, your family, your organization, our fraternity. And how you do that is ask questions. If somebody says something um, or proposes something and it doesn't exactly meet your needs or you wish there were better circumstances, start asking questions. Um, use active listening skills, which is a core fundamental of the negotiation process where you ask thoughtful questions, you're empathetic uh, in your inquiries. In other words, you're gonna put yourself in their shoes. Uh, you're gonna try to be collaborative and you're gonna try to jointly problem solve. If you do that, you will get a lot more out of life. And I've been, this as an example, Doug mentioned I have two kids, two awesome, awesome kids. Lane uh, is 13, Owen's just about to turn 10. And since they were wee little guys, I have taught them uh, to pay attention to what somebody's offering. And if it doesn't meet their needs, to respectfully push back and ask questions and say, hmm, I wonder if there's a better way we could do this. I want them to think for themselves and try to understand if they can do better. Um, and the last thing I would just suggest is kind of a tactical opportunity. If you're an undergrad, um, one of my favorite projects that I do in my sales negotiation class, Doug, is uh, called the Curiosity Conversations Project. And Curiosity Conversations um, was born out of a book that I read called A Curious Mind. Um, and the book's by Brian Grazier. Brian is the produce, uh, production partner for um, uh, out, in, uh, out in Hollywood um, for Ron Howard, the filmmaker Ron Howard. And Brian Grazier uh, in his book 
explains this process that he has had for 35, 40 years. And what he does is he reaches out to people that he is interested uh, in them as a person, in their career, in something special or, or unusual that they might have done, in a characteristic that they possess, let's say leadership or whatever, um, and sought to just visit with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so, the, so I, I took that and made it a project in my class. And what I asked students to do is to use their own curiosity as a creative tool uh, to connect with business leaders or leaders in whatever their major is, whether it's architecture or engineering, uh, film and television, reach out to that person in a non-job-seeking uh, format where you're asking for a very limited amount of time but essentially what you're doing is you're asking for their advice. You're asking for their perspective. How have they been successful? How have they come to the place that they are in their career? And it's just you leveraging curiosity and spending, you know, brief but valuable time. The, the neat thing about being in college is this. It's a magic ticket to a curiosity conversation. Mm -hmm. If you approach somebody in a respectful way, you ask for their advice, that's kind of a magic word, and you ensure them that it's not going to be a big commitment, time commitment on their part, meet in person, get together in a video uh, service like this. Um, I don't know anybody that doesn't meet with college kids in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, folks love to talk about their uh, accomplishments and how they've gotten to where they are. And now if that relationship goes beyond that one meeting and it flourishes and maybe into a, uh, let's say a, uh, sort of mentoring relationship or just a offer for you to reach out in the future, then yes, you could take it to a job seeking, um, kind of a journey that way or a pathway that way. But mm -hmm. this is just strictly to make a, a human connection with somebody based on your own curiosity. And like I said, the timing is important because as a college student, people will meet with you. The day after you're not a college student anymore, people <laughs> are just suspicious that you're looking for a job. Yeah. So uh, that's that's some advice that I, I would put out there. No, I, I like I like it. I like it. And remind me never to get in a room where we're negotiating a ice cream cone with your kids, because if yeah. you're teaching them those skills at 10 years old, they're, they're going to be in, in good shape. So no, well, my, I, yeah. what's that? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, Mac, I can't thank you enough for, for sure. joining us today. It's uh, awesome to talk to uh, somebody from uh, University of Akron and, and uh, once a zip, always a zip. Right. So, yeah. And also, I want to thank our audience and the brothers for listening to us today. And, and thank you for joining us for On the Banks. Hey, uh, we look forward to seeing you again. We're going to meet some uh, some great brothers and hear some, some new stories. And I just always like to end and say, until we meet again, mighty proud to be a Fiji. Thanks. Absolutely.